we start today's episode, just to let you know, you can now nominate for the 2025 Northern Power Women Awards. To be in with a chance of celebrating with changemakers, trailblazers and advocates on the 6th of March 2025. Nominate now at wearepower.net. Power Women podcast for your career and your life, no matter what business you're in. Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of the Northern Power Women podcast. It's episode 21. Do feminists still want engagement rings? I'm Sam Walker and this month you can hear what happened when we visited Newcastle to record our podcast at Northern Power Futures where we talked about regulating the internet, the government changing attitudes towards getting women onto boards and one pound engagement rings and other wedding related traditions. And I think these days we do cherry pick um, with sometimes without even really knowing what the, the meaning or the symbolism is behind some of those gestures. You know, you, your father giving you away. I mean, we need to talk about that one, definitely. In the big interview, you will hear from PR changemaker Sarah Hall on how important company values are when choosing your customers and also the importance of role models and mentors. Sometimes all you need is someone to say, that's a great idea. Have you considered that or have you met this person? And that's how you that's how you move forward. And that's really what I wish I'd had earlier on. And in Ask the Hive, you tackled an unpleasant question about feet. If someone took their shoes off and took their socks off and stunk out the area, I would steal shoes and I would steal socks. And then they would have to walk home barefoot. But first, can you believe it? The Northern Power Women Awards are nearly upon us. Yes, it is March, one of the very busiest months for the founder of Northern Power Women, Simone Roche. Well, that was quite the tropical February. A bit of an upgrade on last year's Beast from the East, I think. Uh, We had a tremendous weekend in Newcastle hosting Northern Power Futures, sponsored by EY and Vodafone, with amazing speakers and panels discussing and debating the future of our North. We rounded a brilliant event with 220 16-year-old-plus taking part in a giant speed mentoring with over 70 mentors, including many from our partners and also the British Armed Forces we had in attendance. We also took the opportunity to record this month's podcast live. So many joined us for the podcast and a pasty session at the wonderful Boiler Shop, hosted by our very own Northern Power Futures supporter, cheerleader and future lister, Advita Patel. Thank you so much to our expanded panel of Laura Partridge, Paul Lancaster, Ravneet Kaur and Stacey Dobson. And thanks for supporting Northern Power Futures and thank you, thank you for the fab pasties. We have a great Person with Purpose interview this month with Sarah Hall, who has been such a brilliant advocate of Northern Power Futures and also Northern Power Women. I'm sure you'll love it. It's been great to speak to so many great businesses. I started the month in Harrogate at Skipton Building Society Leadership Conference, talking inclusivity, followed by a great evening with future female leaders of the Stagecoach organisation. The Tahedal Islam High School for Girls invited myself and some of our brilliant Northern Power Women role models to be part of their student conference, which was amazing to be part of and have now been invited to speak at the neighbouring boys' school too. 
I really enjoyed supporting the scorecard launch led by Helen Pankhurst and the Fawcett Society. And I do believe I had a soap box megaphone in front of Emmeline Pankhurst statue in St Peter's Square at one point. I know. Uh, I was enthralled to hear Jasmine de Sangira CBE speak at the Woman of the Year alumni event. Plus, I got the opportunity to meet uh, some of our great Northern Power Women Awards shortlisters and future list. What a great dinner for our mentoring programme in partnership with Michael Page. Over 40 guests attending, a wonderful dinner entertained by our guest speaker, Colette Roche, the CEO of Manchester United and one of our brilliant power listers. Well, it's not long to go now until the Northern Power Women Awards sponsored by Manchester Airport Group on the 18th of March. Our fourth outing with over 750 guests attending, our biggest yet, and a raft of sponsors all passionate about recognising, celebrating and showcasing role models. The menu tasting, I have to say, was totally epic. A real highlight. I loved all the food storytelling of Shep Rick from Manchester Central Convention Complex. Join us online, not for the food, but join us online on the evening as we social and stream the awards, hashtag NPW Awards. And as we head towards International Women's Day, don't forget to join us on the 7th of March at 12.30 for our webinar in partnership with Edit Development. We're going to be unleashing our superheroes. Well, thank you so much as ever for all of your support and feedback and please do keep the conversation going. Have a great March. Happy International Women's Day. As ever, the brilliant Simone Roche MBE. So to our discussion panel, which this month was held at Northern Power Futures in Newcastle. And a special mention and a really big thank you to the wonderful Advita Patel, who stepped into my shoes this month to be the hostess with the mostess. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. My name is Advita Patel, and I'm going to be your host today for the Northern Power Women's Podcast. Uh, we're in the city of Newcastle, where, as you know, we are hosting our two-day Northern Power Futures event at this fabulous venue, The Boiler Shop, which I think you'll all agree here that it's an absolutely fantastic place to hold such a, a wonderful networking event. Um, for more information on Northern Power Futures, uh, check out our Twitter feed and also our website, which is northernpowerfutures.com. We'll be back sooner than you think, so definitely check us out to find out when that will happen. But without further ado, I'm going to introduce our wonderful panel. So starting off, we have Stacey Dobson, who's the Director of Sales Operations and Value Band at Sky. Stacey has worked uh, in the telecoms and IT industry for 14 years, working her way up through the ranks from an advisor into a senior leadership positions. Uh, Stacey calls herself a proud Geordie. She's an advocate for diversity and inclusion and has a particular passion for supporting young Northern people starting out in their careers. Uh, we have Ramneet Kaur, Innovation Manager uh, of Offshore Renewable Energy Catapult, uh, which is UK's flagship technology innovation and research centre for advancing wind, wave and tidal energy. Uh, she's also the co-founder of Newcastle-based AI and I-enabled clean tech startup Equiwatt. Uh, following Ranveet, we have Laura Partridge, who's the digital programme lead for the North East Local Enterprise Partnership. Laura is passionate about developing a prosperous north through collaboration and networks, 
and she relocated from my hometown in Manchester to the North East and has joined the team that delivers the Great Exhibition of the North. Previously, she was Innovation and Engagement Manager for the N8 Research Partnership. And last but not least, we have Paul Lancaster, founder and director of Newcastle Startup Week. Paul is a super connector, founder and director of Plan Digital, the annual Newcastle Startup Week Festival, monthly Founders Fridays event, and ongoing This Is Me campaign, Made in the Northeast, social media campaign. So a big round of applause, please, for our panel. So, kicking off with question one, which I'm going to go to Stacey with first. Should social media companies have a duty of care to users? Take down the content that could be detrimental to mental health, for example. Um, I, think, I think they do have a responsibility, but I don't think it's solely theirs. So, I think as parents and carers, friends and relatives of people who might be vulnerable potentially, you know, the duty of care to try and um, kind of keep them away from that stuff that we find would perhaps make their condition worse as well. So I do think the social media firms could do more, definitely. I think, you know, with the power of big data and AI and all sorts of things, there are ways of spotting content that is attracting certain people or certain types of attention and be more proactive in closing that down without relying on users to, to, to kind of report that content. But I, I do also, as a parent feel really strongly that you know you need to be knowing uh what your what your kids are doing online you know there's some cool apps out there where you can get that um help you monitor what kind of sites and what kind of subjects they're looking at and i do think it is a shared community responsibility i I think to ask the social media platforms to solve all of that i think is a bit much right great answer and do you do you agree with that laura what stacy said Yes, I think uh, your point around uh, moderation is, is absolutely right. I think there is a, absolutely, we all have a, a responsibility to make sure that social media is ethical and things like that. But I think half the trick is being really aware as well of the incredible positive powers of social media and actually empowering everybody, whether it's CEOs or kids or parents, um, to exploit it for its positive uses uh, and not go so far down. I mean, obviously there are real real major tragic events that have happened around teenagers' use of social media, and that that's absolutely deserves utmost respect. Um, but we don't want to lose the positive aspects of it and police it to such a far extent that some of the things, perhaps around uh, political movements, um, communication across areas that, where perhaps people haven't had a voice, is really important. And Paul, uh, you obviously do a lot on social media. Have you, um, do you have any strong views on this? Do you think it is the, 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 the support of, um, the, sorry, the responsibility of the social media companies to monitor? Um, well, yes. And I think they are doing as mu- a lot. You know, they are trying to do as much as they can, probably can, can do more. It's difficult to police when people have got mobile phones. They're on it all, all the time, so... I think schools and teachers are doing a pretty good job. Parents are trying to do as much as they can, but the the kids are usually um, more savvy than the parents and the teachers anyway, and uh, they can't moderate it all the time, 24 hours a day. So I think it is more about an education sort of piece about the the pros and cons of social media. I'm wearing a T-shirt now. There's a company called Try Life, and that is actually a way for... it's It's an interactive drama series where kids, students can experience different scenarios and the outcomes of those actions. 
So I think things like that are a really good way to educate people on, on, on the pros and cons. Yeah, Just out of interest, to those uh, members in the audience who have got children or teenagers, how many of you actually monitor the usage of your teenagers or child's phone usage in terms of what they're looking at on social media? Does anyone in the audience do that or do you just let them crack on with what's going on? Wow, so just just a couple of people. So um, I think Emma's got the, oh, sorry, Di's got the Roman mic there. So um, the, the ones who put the hand up, do you, how do you track that? Do you kind of check the phone every evening or do you just check in with them regularly in, in how you do that, if you don't mind, if that's okay? I, um, I put a, like, a time limit on her device, so it turns itself off at a certain time at night, and she's only allowed a certain amount of hours throughout the day where she uses it. Um, and it's locked down so that she can actually only access certain sites. Brilliant, thank you. Do you think regulation, having regulation, could lead to lesser investment in uh, social media, uh, Stacey? I, th I think it makes it harder as a barrier for entry for lots of new, new, you know, new ways. And I think Paul made the point, you know, it is important that you allow people to contribute um, and also to express themselves in different ways. You know, it would be a very sad world if we were all the same and we all did the same things. So I think there are clever ways in which you can do it, but they often cost a lot. So that, I think that's why lots of communities rely on their users, because that's usually the fastest way of finding out whether something's kind of controversial or not, somebody reporting it. Yeah, completely agree. Um, so we like to have this conversation online, so please join us at North Power Women on Twitter if you have any uh, thoughts or questions on this, or you can email podcast at north, uh, northernpowerwomen.com. Um, moving on to question two. The government has announced plans to shift its attention away from getting professional women onto major company boards and instead focus on championing and unemployed is this the right move? Ranbeet, I'm going to go to you first, if that's okay. So I think um, shifting the focus is not the only way, because we are, according to the World Economic Forum, we are still 217 years away from um, pay gap, pay gender gap to be filled. So if we just shift the focus, uh, it would not get the right kind of attention, right kind of time which is required to actually make it sooner. I think in 2017, it was the first time when uh, it had grown bigger. So it was, previous to that, it was 170 years would be, it would take. But suddenly in 2017, it showed the negative where it said that it's going to take more than 217 years for getting that parity. So from government's perspective, making sure that they are still putting the right kind of attention and giving it the kind of platform it requires so that it reaches, it happens quickly. We celebrated 100 years of uh, getting voting rights last year, and we're still still talking about uh, gender parity, pay gap, and discrimination in so many different levels for women returners and how all, all those different brackets of women facing that kind of problem. So I, I, I certainly think government can do more for our people who are not having that kind of jobs, but not, only, not by just shifting the focus, by making sure that they balance it well. Uh, and what do you think, Laura? Do you agree? I mean, I'm quite surprised to hear that. It's 217 years we're away from getting uh, equal pay. Uh, what, what are your thoughts, Laura? 
yeah, I mean, that, that figure is, is ridiculous um, and, and very shocking. Um, but I would say it's not an either or. I think this is part of a bigger picture here around broader equality and diversity issues. Um, I think looking at the other end of the career scale, if you like, um, it's not just about people in positions in boardrooms and the CEO level. There's a real need to build and develop people from all sorts of backgrounds, uh, almost regardless of gender, I think, in terms of getting them into entry of careers, getting them inspired. Um, and how we tackle that at that, that end, whether it's through people's education or, or even before they've started to think about what they want to be when they grow up, we are fixing the problem for 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the line. Um, so no, I don't think the uh, we need to, I agree with most of Ravneet's points there, we, we shouldn't be taking attention away um, from the, the number of women in those kind of roles uh, at all, but it doesn't stop and start with that debate and, it, and the, there is a need to open that up to a diversity conversation. Great. Paul, did you? Yeah. Um, I definitely don't think you should shift the focus away. If anything, I think you should put more pressure on and legislate more because um, the number of women on boards has actually fallen in the last year on FTSE 100 boards. And um, I know that a lot of the FTSE 100 companies only put women on boards because they would risk the fine if they didn't. So you do the carrot and the stick. A lot of companies, they won't do it unless they're forced to do it. So uh, it's, it's been proven that if you just leave people to their own devices, they won't do it. The only way to make a change is to actually force some of the companies to do it. With, with fines if they don't. And Stacey, I, I, I what the panel's saying, so you think the focus uh, is, shouldn't be taken away from the professional women? Um, I, I think it shouldn't be completely taken away. I think there's still a long way to go at the exec level. So, um, But I think those who are in those privileged positions do have a responsibility to inspire and encourage and really grow those people who are at the entry level of their career. And actually before that, at school, you know, I do a lot of career talks at school and my entire career was a bit of an accident. I was supposed to be a barrister, uh, not, not a kind of contact centre type person. And, and I think just hearing those different stories that people don't end up where they think they're going to end up, it's not a linear thing. There's lots of luck along the way. It's making the most of those opportunities. And I think people sharing those stories from that exec level is really important. And the other thing I think is, um, you know, the sons and daughters of those people in those exec level positions, uh, that's the way to get to them. So, so the, if you've not read it, there's a great book by Helena Morrissey who founded the 30% Club called It's a Great Time to Be a Girl. And, and what she talks about is that, that drive to get those women on those boards, but also how they got through to get male advocates of change. And actually it was through their children. You know, it was trying to articulate that if their daughter wanted to go off and be a, an engineer, you know, they were significant. They had more barriers than... And, and, and I think there is something in that about, about the responsibility as a senior manager in a company of sharing your story and also encouraging people to take the leap and try and see, you know, at, at 16, 17, 18, there is no wrong choice in your career. It just doesn't exist. It's just learning whether you like something or you don't. Completely agree. So, taking out to our audience, I can see there's um, a lot of professional women, hopefully, out there. So, what do you guys think? Do you think it's right for the government to take the attention away from um, shifting its attention away, sorry, from getting professional women on major company boards? Has anyone got any views on this? 
I think the panel's actually covered it quite well, but I think it should be a two-pronged approach. She should be encouraging more women onto the boards, but also kind of encouraging women who are just starting out in their careers to, to get, gain the skills and the mentorship and sponsorship so they can progress up to the board level as well. Yeah, good point. And just out of interest, has, um, did you guys have any mentors or coaches on your way up in, in your professional <coughs> And, and how do you and how do you define that relationship? Uh, I, I had both male and female, so so um, not a particular gender bias either way. And I think. Uh, what it allowed me to do was a really safe space to have those conversations I was frightened of. You know, do I take this job? Do I move 180 miles down the country to take a job? You know, uh, uh, but also I think just that reflecting back, you have got the answer somewhere in you. It, it's just somebody else kind of trying to coach it out of you. I think you said sponsorship. I think it's really important. When I returned from maternity leave the second time round, I had a really senior female sponsor who you know, kept me quite current, um, helped me make introductions, and I, it made a massive difference. My first maternity leave was a disaster. Coming back to work after that was just awful. Whereas second time round, that sponsorship really made a massive difference. Yeah. I think I'll agree to the point of uh, then coach, uh, coaches at early career so that you make the right decisions of, as you said rightly, uh, Stacey, that making the right choice of uh, is 180 miles driving down south is the right option for me because there were points in my career when I, I actually did my second master's when I came to Newcastle and uh, there were times when I was considered as a starter so I, I wasn't really sure is this the place or should I be again moving down south to make those choices and having the right kind of mentors and coaches who told that you can actually get those kind of opportunities if you kind of create your niche and stuff like that it really mattered at that point in time Who the, I think it's reinforced what you already know, but those uh, right choices, people helping you to make those right choices really matters. And, and now, then, as you move in your career, having the right sponsors also help you to reach to the next stages of your career. So I, I, I cannot stress uh, more on the importance of having those mentors and sponsors for you to go to the next stages of your career. I mean, I couldn't agree more. I mean, sponsors, uh, mentors and coaches have definitely helped me in my career. And without that support of having those individuals, male and, uh, and women and men, sorry, uh, has definitely enhanced my career. So if anyone is going through a career uh, looking for promotions or different career routes, I would definitely encourage mentors and coaches to that, um, that uh, support in you that, that's needed. Um, again, if, if we want to carry on the conversation on our Twitter, so at North Power Women, uh, or you can email uh, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. It'll be really interesting to hear everyone's views. So the next topic, which is really interesting, I don't know if you guys have heard that Poundland have brought out a range of one-pound engagement rings, and they've actually sold 20,000 of them at the moment. So, what I want to ask, and I want to kick off with the only man on the panel, which is Paul. Are we, are we still notion of spending three months' salary at the moment, Paul, or is it, is it outdated? So, I was telling you a story before. Um, I've been married for 10 years. When I proposed to my wife, I bought a £15 ring from Argos, just so I had a ring that I could go on holiday with and get down on bended knee and propose to her, knowing full well that she would want to buy her own ring when we got back. So I then spent 
two months of my salary on buying a nice engagement ring, but so I think there is a role um, for these cheap rings. You know, there might be lots of people just buying something symbolic that they can propose to someone with. Um, because I didn't want to make a mistake and buy the wrong ring and something she didn't like, and um, so it turned out the right the right idea. I sold my. I used to be a DJ producer. I sold my turntables, my mixer, my sampler, all my music equipment to buy that ring because it was a very symbolic gesture that this was a new life we were going to do. But there was that, she's a very strong woman. She's in charge all the time, but there was still that kind of belief that I would be the one to propose and I would be the one getting down on bended ring, uh, bended knee, sorry, to, uh, to propose to her. So That's I don't know so... if that answered your question, but... That's so interesting. So why, why do women, do you think, uh, if this is the case, still wait for men to ask if, they, uh, um, if you're in a heterosexual relationship to, to, to get married? So you're, you're married, Stacey, so... I am, uh, poor, long-suffering Alex. Uh, he proposed to me, but I think, I think we, um, we had talked about it quite equitably, I suppose, in the sense of we knew we wanted to get married, to have children, to raise a family. But I left the actual... So I told him what kind of style... We, we kind of discussed that, but I left the kind of purchasing and the surprising and, you know, him choosing where he wanted to do it uh, to, to him. I don't really know why, actually. Uh, Probably he's quite traditionalist, so so he he wanted to do that. That's something he wanted to do. But he didn't he didn't ask my mum and dad. You know, he didn't ask my parents if he could have permission. We just came back from holiday, uh, engaged basically. So um, kind of mix of both, I suppose. Uh, so, uh, Laura, do you have any thoughts on this? <laughs> I'm still getting over the fact that Paul sold his turntables. That's amazing. Um, I, I couldn't sell my records. I've still got all my records. Few. Um, I'm not married uh, against marriage per se, but I must admit I do think it's an institution that's very out of step with modern life. Um, and if we're going to unpick the what the, the price of a, an engagement ring should be in terms of the very long list of traditions and and... Uh, ideas that we act out either for engagement or for weddings or for marriage itself, then the, lo the list doesn't, it is much longer. Um, and I think these days we do cherry pick um, with sometimes without even really knowing what the, the meaning or the symbolism is behind some of those gestures. Uh, you know, weddings are, are full of them and, and couples will choose whether or not they're going to do some or all or none. You know, you, your father giving you away. I mean, we need to talk about that one, definitely. Um, and cutting the cake. I don't even know what that means, but I'm sure there's some kind of symbolism attached to it. Um, I also think that in the way we are today, I think we, we've got to look at a bigger picture here. And, and if, if I was really young and, and I was a, a lad or a lass looking to ask my beloved if they wanted to spend the rest of life with me, then... I guess I would be tempted with Poundland because if somebody said to me, right, you've got a few grand, you want to stick it on buying a house together or, or going on a big journey, traveling together or a ring, then I have to say the ring would probably be at the bottom of the list. <laughs> Ravni, would you, would you propose? Thing? I think I'm come from a culture where we are, uh, average Indians spend a lifetime of income in weddings. It's more of a festival, so it's a seven days. It's not a one-day wedding. So for me, from my perspective, I think I'm long way of giving away from the tradition. I think it's not only because of I really wanted it, it's because what my family really wants. I come from a culture where it is still very traditional to have an arranged marriage, and there's still an expectation from my family to have that. 
for me, I guess I am fighting a lot, of, a lot between two, the two cultures I have lived in. So I've been brought up in Indian culture, but I've um, worked here professionally for eight years now. And I'm constantly challenging those kind of traditions, like do we really need to spend like 50,000 barometers for a wedding? Or uh, is, can I just do with just putting that 50,000 towards a house uh, and stuff like that? So I wouldn't be expecting him to give me a great ring, but I will still be expecting the proposal to be coming from him. So I'm, I'm still waiting for that proposal, so I don't know when that's going to happen. <laughs> but uh, I think in those ways, I, I'm, just because of the tradition and the culture I come from, I'm way far off from that. And I think it comes from your upbringing as well. I think you see certain things and, and the cut cake, cutting of the cake and giving away of the daughter and stuff like that. You start, um, as a child, you start associating emotions and a lot of uh, meanings to that without even realizing that they are nothing, just procedures to get, uh, getting to a point. And, and it's an institution, after all. It, it's, it's a commitment. Even if you choose to go through that uh, institution or you choose not to go through that uh, particular institution, the commitment still remains very substantial, irrespective of what you choose to do. And I think as you grow up and then you start understanding, I think it doesn't really matter. And being a feminist, I, I constantly contradict those things. And I am trying to be more of a feminist in the true sense, but I think it's just there are times when you kind of between. So if there's any, I mean, I completely agree with what uh, Ran Reed said there. Um, if you do consider yourself, uh, I'm throwing this out to the audience for some audience participation now. If you do consider yourself a feminist, do you still enjoy that tradition or would you propose to your partner? Or if you are married, would you propose to your partner? Hi, yeah. Well, I've got a slightly different view in that I married my wife a few years ago. And actually for us, it was, we got the opportunity to have a bit of equality and parity. And I'm an old romantic, and I really, really love her, and she really loves me, and we didn't have to choose who proposed. It could be either of us, which is fantastic. And what it really afforded us with the, and with the wedding, we could do whatever we wanted, because there's no traditions, because we can make it up as we go along. So my wife actually designed my engagement ring and used my birthstone, so no bling, but no pound land either. And then she designed hers as well with her birthstone. So it's, oh, Laura's smiling, which is good, I got a smile. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really special, but actually the equality vote and being able to get married was really, really important. And if we're gonna ditch it as a tradition, let's everybody ditch it, but I'm all right with it for now. Who proposed and none of you proposed, or did you have a mutual agreement? She proposed to me. Ah, she proposed to you under a tree, amazing. Very happy to be married and, and share a partnership. And I think that's, that's the important thing here, sharing the partnership in whatever form that partnership takes. That's important. But I'm going to buy my own ring and I'm going to buy my own car. Or I might buy the ring or the car, but I'm not going to expect any person to provide for me. I'm going to provide for myself. So did you buy your own drink when you, when you got married? Contributed to it. Oh, amazing. Has yeah, anyone else bought their own ring out of interest? A few people in, in, in the audience have put their hand up, definitely. Uh, I think there's a question at the back there. Sorry. Hello. Um, I'm not engaged, but I've been with my boyfriend for six years and we, we've discussed marriage and, and things like that, and it's not for us and for another ten years, but it was actually a conversation we had a few months ago and I was talking to him about the idea of not taking his name 
and keep in my own name. And he then made the point of, of the same, it's the same for him of why should, you know, the idea of me buy, him spending to buy a ring to actually um, kind of, you know, to say, will you marry me? And, and, and at first I was a bit like, oh God, I'm not going to get an engagement ring and have all that traditions. But when I really was actually like, it is the male equivalent of a female not taking the name. It's the, not like going against that tradition of, you know, of having the man's name. It's the same for a, a, a guy to buy the engagement ring. Um, and when you said about the, the Poundland engagement rings, it kind of made me think rather than investing in just a one pound piece of plastic, if that sounds rude, um, rather than doing that, that actually investing the money in buying two wedding rings for each other and actually spending the money on that. If you were to, if you wanted to invest money in jewellery, why don't you spread the focus on spreading it over both rings so you both have something valuable rather than just the woman getting the piece of jewellery? So that's kind of yeah. my say on it. Definitely. That's, and to the men in the audience, I mean, does that kind of give you a little bit of relief that you may not have to spend three months of your salary on, a, on an engagement ring? Is anyone willing to kind of say if they still would or wouldn't? My wife wants an eternity ring now, so I've got to save up for that. Um, so I'm quite young, so I've got a few more years before I start thinking of marriage, thankfully. Um, but I think it inspires me because I know that in a relationship, I'm not just expected to give, give, give. I'm not just expected to be the one to provide. However, we're both on an equal playing field, so I can expect a kind of you know, re reciprocation for my wife as well to do something for me. So I think that's, again, a testament to the benefit of pushing equality, pushing feminine, and do benefit from it as well. And men do have a lot to gain. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to married life, just not the cost. <laughs> couldn't agree more, couldn't agree more. Well done, give him a round of applause for that. Well, so we're nearing to the end of the podcast, so a big round of applause, please, to our panel, who have been fantastic. And of course, to, uh, to our audience members for some fantastic participation. Uh, to carry on the conversation, you can follow our Twitter feed at North Power Women, uh, or you can email podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Thank you, everyone. Great stuff from Advita. And thanks again to all our panellists for giving up their time to take part this month. Next month, we're in Leeds. So I really hope you can join us there. You can find out more at northernpowerwomen.com. The big interview this month comes from Northern Power Woman Powerlister 2018, Sarah Hall. From Sarah Hall Consulting, specialist in management consultancy, PR and marketing. I asked Sarah what drew her to PR in the first place. Well, that's a really good question. And I kind of happened into it by chance. So I didn't know what I wanted to do um, as a job. And my mum actually happened to work in um, helping people into, into careers. So I used a very fancy bit of software, closing all the things that I was good at and the things that I enjoyed. And uh, basically, it, one of the choices that came out, the top choices were public relations. Now, I was still hedging my bets and thinking, oh, I'm going to be either a, te a teacher or somebody who does translation. I, uh, so I did a French and media degree in the end uh, and specialised in PR. But as part of that, I had to do two work placements. Mm. And once I'd done those, was never turning back. Really? It was, it was love at first placement. Yeah, it was. It was just public relations is such an interesting job. Uh, you'll hear people say it all the time, but no two days are the same. Mm. You get to meet 
some amazing people. Uh, I know an awful lot on face value about a lot of things because you you work in so many different industries and so many different clients. And uh, that's a really nice place to be. So I'm a great dinner party de- uh, guest. Just don't ask me to go into anything in too much detail. <laughs> <laughs> in those early days when you were starting out in your career, you'd fallen in love with the profession. Who were your role models? Did you have those people that you looked up to and who inspired you? Oh, that's a really, really good question. I mean, when I first started out, I think I had my head down and I probably wouldn't have thought about things in that way at that point, uh, which is very, very much one of the reasons I'm always very keen to help the next generation um, and say to them, have you ever thought about getting a mentor? Because I think the sooner that you do that, you have someone who's championing you all the way through, the better it is. So I wouldn't, I would have actually said, no, I I didn't really have those people around me. Um, And um, I kind of, got through with a bit of luck, uh, a lot of hard work and a bit of grit. It's interesting looking at the first few years of your career because you were starting out at a time where people jumped into a job and they stayed put in that job for a very, Mm. very long time. I mean, the world's a different place now, but you didn't and you always looked, I mean, you leapt from job to job um, every couple of years or so starting out, didn't you? Was that that hard, hard to buck that trend? Uh, it was just funny. Um, I think a, a few things went in my favour there. So like you've identified, it, 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 the world isn't just what 20 years ago was so different. People did go into a job and they were there for 10, 20 years. And um, I, my, I don't know, I just, I just, I was always ready for a little bit more and different opportunities came my way. So I went into a variety of different agencies and probably stayed for about two years at each one. Um, and it was really good because I, I went into product relations. Then I wanted to widen my marketing experience. So I went to a full service marketing agency. Then I moved on again uh, to something very similar where I did an MA in marketing. And um, I happened to win a couple of awards along the way and I was headhunted from there. Mm. Um, and each one, it was really good because I went to a different agency and I knew what, exactly what I liked about each one, but what I would do differently because I was a little bit cocky as you are in your 20s. <laughs> uh, and all these things that was really useful because um, when they got to the point where uh, a, I was running a business for, on behalf of another organization and then set up on my own. When it got to setting up my own business, I was very, very clear in terms of my objectives, how I wanted the agency to be, what it would look like, what our values would be, mm. you know, how, how it would all be done. And uh, it was all about, you know, doing things a little bit differently. Um, so we, we were quite innovative in setting up a, a virtual um, agency model. And then, but also making sure that people were absolutely at the heart of it. So the team come first and that they've got quite a lot of autonomy and responsibility and have a a very clear say in how the business runs, but also that clients would feel um, really important, uh, our priority as well. And that um, we would just do really good work for great people. And and that's how how we've always done it. And it means that we will take difficult decisions that if a contract doesn't feel right for us or the spark isn't there between people, we'll Mm. we'll step away from it. We'll recommend somebody else and and somebody who has got the right skill set and will hopefully do a great job. But we will we will step back. You see, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And that almost flies in the face of so much business advice you get, uh, you know, when you're starting out of, you know, grab every opportunity that you can have to have that, Mm. have that deep set knowledge and belief in your own value system to know, actually, we need to serve our values first, not just our bank balance. And I think, well, it's exactly that. I mean, I talk an awful lot in my job about um, 
accountable leadership and, and social purpose. Mm. Um, and we've kind of, um, business, I, I kind of feel, has lost its way. And if you look at the different reports, um, they actually suggest the same in terms of the Edelman Trust Barometer shows that trust in, in business and in media and our political system is at an all-time low. And that's because, you know, in Boomtown, Boomtown, brands have had a great time being able to do what they want. I've just sold, sold, sold. Um, and actually, they haven't really thought about the wider society. Now, of course, there are big brands and there are small companies who um, are, are outside of this. But, you know, when things are good, people don't really worry about what else is happening. But when things do get hard, when you've got austerity, when you've got turbulence in the political system, um, and which we've got and we've, and we've had for years now, actually, people are a little bit more hard up. They spend a bit more time thinking about um, you know the, the brands that they want to buy for, what they're doing for them. So in terms mm. of who, are, which are the brands and the organisations that understand what life is like for me, uh, and are perhaps uh, helping to alleviate some of the challenges and the stresses that I face, and and that really really matters. And that purpose is is absolutely crucial in terms of you know having a strong reputation, mm. and and it's what really matters here in terms of. Uh, I'm very fortunate in terms of my business that obviously I can make the decisions, and it is a lifestyle business. I always said. I wasn't bothered about scaling it. I didn't want to sell it for hundreds of thousands of pounds. I wanted to do good work for good people and be able to work with a great team, but most of all, manage the work alongside my family. I've got, you know, two boys, my partner's got three kids and, and it's quite a, you know, it's quite a balancing act. Yes. But, you know, I always said, make enough money with great people to be able to pay the bills and put a bit aside. And um, I don't think that's a bad goal, but that's not what society teaches you. You know, it is, mm. as you said, about how can you make the most money and it doesn't really matter how you get there. And when I'm speaking to clients, it's not about that. It's about what what is your purpose outside of making money? Uh, how are you living that? You know, are you, you know, are you doing everything you can commercially in an ethical, sustainable fashion? And, and that's what matters. And that's when people start to focus back on that. That's when trust in business will grow again. And trust between your team members as well, because I know that you have an agile business model. So you say to mm. your team, you get the work done. That's that's all that matters to me, that you get the work done. But where you do that work, and in a way, when you do it as well, is up to you. And there's that level of trust there, which I'm guessing makes for a much better work-life balance within your team as well. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, um, that's really, really important because as long as the client's needs are being met and it's high-standard work, you know, why should I dictate how and when that's done as long as it works for everybody? And we've got to remember, it's a really fast-paced world for everybody. And no matter what age you are, everybody has different stresses. So you could be younger, um, younger member of the team who has actually a hobby that you absolutely love. And why should you have to give that up? Because basically training's on a Monday morning. I, I don't mm. see why that would be the case. You might be a little bit older. You might have aging parents you need to look after. You might have a growing family. Everybody has different things in their lives. Uh, and I just don't think, particularly for an industry, like public relations a nine-to-five business model fits very well it's it's very strange that we try and <laughs> try and stick to that when, you, when we don't need to you know you've got media around the clock um you know you've got community management for social media which is around the clock it, it you know makes sense that we do it you know we're much yes. more flexible in our approach and I know that you're you're very passionate and you've done so much work about di- around diversity in your industry, but also mm. around mental health and well-being as well. I mean, what what did you find about mental health and well-being within the PR industry? 
Yeah, sure. So I run a community called Future Proof, uh, and I started that in 2015 uh, because I wanted to write a book, and, and I very quickly found that I couldn't do it on my own, but I could do it by using a crowdsource model. And um, anyway, we we looked at best practice in product relations, and the first book came out and was um, really really popular. Um, and so we've done a series since then. There are actually four books in the series. But uh, in the midst of that, we did a white paper about mental health, and um, you know, it, the results aren't really surprising. It's very similar um, across all industries, but, you know, it's about um, people needing a little bit more control over their lifestyle, really, and particularly the, the work element. You know, you spend more time in work than anywhere else. Mm. You know, if you're doing always, if it's always on, which public relations uh, can be, if you're working long hours, if you don't feel like um, your management team are really understanding the stresses that you face, if you've got a corporate culture where you can't talk about an issue, that's particularly difficult for people, you know, mental health is unfortunately still seen as a bit a bit of a stigma yes. and people can't talk about it like they can a broken leg you can't come in and say or, or people won't client and say oh, i've been i've been diagnosed with depression and i need this this and this mm. and that's a big issue now it's really good that actually organizations are being proactive and starting to put services in place to help um members of the team but the problem is they only kick in in a reactive fashion what we need to do is, is move to a position of prevention so actually is the culture right are we listening to the team is it an open door policy uh, and actually is there any technology we can use to automate some of the role to, to take some of the load off yeah um and i think that is really important but for me there is a bit there's still a bigger issue across across business generally and i think part of the problem is that we silo off um mental health to perhaps hr you know the the hr um, mm. function rather than keeping it at the management uh table it should be on the management agenda you know when you're talking about business strategy and operations your workforce need to be at the top of the list too uh, and what you know so we, we're dealing with it there and then in terms of what's the culture like you know do i've always talked about actually and i was in a meeting with cbi the director deputy director general uh, a couple of weeks back and i said to them i really wish we had a happiness index both like a corporate one that businesses could use but also one for the general population because we wouldn't be in the situation we are now yeah. uh, if we had had because i honestly think that we would have seen the indicators that led to the result of the of the Brexit vote, um, because that was, you know, as people say, you know, and, and um, polls show that was more of a result of people being unhappy with the status quo mm. rather than an issue with uh, with Europe. And I think it's a bit like that in terms of if you're monitoring within a workplace that you know the health and well-being of, of your team, no matter what size, you know that that's got to put you in a really good position as long as you're you're acting on those learnings. Absolutely. I wonder whether you've noticed as well within the younger generation who are coming through, you know, the millennials. Um, mm. I've noticed that quite often it seems that that generation are, are the ones leading the way going, wait a minute, we're not going to do 80 hour weeks. Well, you know, yeah. they, they're almost leading that work life balance from the from behind in a way saying you might have done it that way, but we're not going to do it that way. Yeah, I, I love this generation. Um, I think they've been really badly done to. Um, but you know what? They kind of live and breathe purpose. And actually, it's a, it's a good you know point to, to, to pull in there in terms of if you want to recruit that generation, your organization needs it because that's what they look for. Now, this is a generation who had to pay tuition fees. So they're coming out with loads of debt. They can't get a foot on the housing ladder. They're um, not necessarily sure what they want to do because they know that they're not going to get a high paid job. And even if they do, they're not going to be able to pay off the debt, the debt that they've got. So they're mm. looking for things that fulfill them much more, which is a really powerful driver. And I think it's a really important lesson for business, actually, which we need yeah. to, to hear. Absolutely. Um, 
looking back towards your industry, towards PR, what, what would you say mm. is, is the biggest challenge that PR faces today? Oh, now, this is a good one. So I could go on like this for hours. Yeah, this is a big question, but I'll, I'll answer it in, can I give you two different answers? So yeah. there's one that um, I've been really dealing with through my Future Proof work and most recently through the Chartered Institute of Public Relations, the CIPR. And um, one of it has been um, really just reasserting the value of public relations to business. I think that um, people have said for a long time, PR needs better PR. And I think we, we mm. have needed that. Um, because we are a strategic management function. We are supposed to be the eyes, ears and conscience of an organisation, help it to find its purpose, articulate that, uh, improve its performance by making sure that it's efficient, its, its strategy is appropriate, it's engaging properly with all the different um, publics and audiences that it has. Um, so that, that's one issue in terms of making sure that um, as a profession, we all have the right skills, which include business and management skills, and we understand yeah. how organisations work, um, but also have the tactical elements, abilities to be able to deliver campaigns. So that's that's being one. The other big issue that we've got, and again, it's not unique to public relations, but it is becoming a very acute one, is um, our lack of um, diversity and inclusivity. Now, we talk a really good game. We talk and talk and talk about you know being better at this and you know how how we um, need to make sure that we represent the the publics that we serve you know that's how we say it in a very lofty fashion actually do you know what we're, we're not getting anywhere in terms of progress we're almost going backwards and um, public relations is becoming a bit of a closed shop if you don't have networks and money behind you now um, I was lucky I got a council grant when I went to uni they don't exist anymore I probably wouldn't be able to go I mean I worked my way through like many people do mm. but um, nowadays we have an awful lot of people who have been um, privately educated compared to people who have gone through state school. So we're quite unusual in that sense. It's, the gap is much bigger than the, the UK average. And um, while that's not a problem, it's just we need to make sure that we still are open as a career to anybody who wants to get in and that yes. they have the same kind of opportunities. So I don't care where people come from, what their background is, whether they have money or they don't. I just want to make sure we have an even playing field. And um, as such, uh, later this year, I'm actually launching a charity called Socially Mobile, which will um, help people who have got into employment because there are a few ways in if, um, if you don't have very much money behind you. So we've got apprenticeships through the PRCA. Uh, there's a Taylor Bennett Foundation who helps people from the BAME background. They're both great. So they, they can help uh, provide a path in. I'm concerned about once you get in, and you're perhaps locked into uh, you, you, you basically you've got a salary cap on what you can do because it's quite a tactical role. Right. What it can be very difficult at that point is to get the right training and qualifications that will help you unlock your earning potential and get you into a strategic advisor role because that's where the opportunity lies. So that's that's what I'm interested in terms mm. of um, providing grants to people who want to get those business and management uh, courses under their belt because that's that's how they will then move yeah. up the ladder. But perhaps they just won't be able to do that because they're from a um, low-income household or they're from a BAME background. It could be a variety of things. You could be a woman returner and just unable to find the money. So I'm trying to address it in that way so that you know we could all help fundraise and help other people just get that step up the yeah. ladder. And it's this forward thinking, of course, that has led you. Congratulations to be named on the Northern <laughs> Power Women Power List. Um, uh, um, it, it, what importance do you feel organisations like Northern Power Women still have in 2019? Because some people are still out there vocally saying, well, do you know, women, equality exists now. How, <laughs> how, I know. <laughs> how, important, how, how important do you think Northern Power Women is? 
to answer that question, we're very far away from equality. You know, we're taking little baby steps every single day, but, you know, society is still, you know, you can still see that there's, there's um, inequality in a lot of different ways. This um, particular initiative is different. I mean, I, I'm very funny. I, I look very carefully at women-only initiatives. They don't sit easily with me. Yeah. But this one is is superb. It connects, um, you know, uh, very influential people um, and um, really looks at interventions that the business community needs in terms of to, to bring that uh, equality to bear. So uh, what are the issues that the different communities we're working in face? Um, how can we connect people who might be able to help fix them? Uh, how do we do bigger initiatives that help drive the greater good? And the other thing that's really important about it is um, that it connects people like me who are a bit further on in their career with that generation who are coming through. And, you know, as we started at the very beginning of the conversation, I think it's really good that people can meet and perhaps find themselves a mentor and a mentee you know from both sides because you learn from both from both perspectives and actually they've got someone who can champion them through or signpost them because sometimes all you need is someone to say that's a great idea have you considered that or have you met this person and that's how you how that's how you move forward and that's really what i wish i had earlier on in retrospect now knowing how how powerful that can be but this you know the northern power women uh, network is second to none and all kudos to uh, simone uh, roach for you know for putting it together thank you sarah i really look forward to hearing more about the results of your brilliant new initiative as well Whose life and career would you like to know more about? Do let us know. All you need to do is drop us an email, podcast at northernpowerwomen.com. Okay, time now for Ask the Hive. It's a place where you get in touch if you've got any problems you're facing at work or any concerns about your career. And the brilliant Northern Power Women Hive Mind lends you its wisdom. This month, I mean, how do I even introduce this one? (laughs) It's a first for Ask the Hive. It's all about a problem with feet. The person that I sit next to at work always takes the shoes and socks off and it makes me feel really uncomfortable. How do I approach this? If someone took their shoes off and took their socks off and stunk out the area, I would steal shoes and I would steal socks and then they would have to walk home barefoot and then the next time they would learn not to take their shoes off. And if they did, then I would just steal the next pair of shoes that they bring in and have a large collection of shoes. And they will not take their shoes off again in future for fear of them being stolen. I don't think it's a case of making somebody stop when somebody at work is doing something that you're not comfortable with. I just think we need to get much better at how we articulate how that's making you feel. And that's not just around somebody with their shoes and socks off and having smelly feet. That can be around some of the terminology that they use, some of the way that they talk about people, some of what's classed as banter. It's all about just having the confidence within your organisation, the culture within your organisation, that you can have that honest conversation but done in the right way so that you can tell that person that you don't have to go how smelly his feet are but just the fact he takes the shoes and socks off how it makes you feel uncomfortable and then somehow within that work towards some kind of compromise it doesn't have to be an on or off situation it's just got to be something that you're both comfortable with right what i'd do i'd get some food coloring and i'd put it in each shoe and on their socks well they're not there so next time they put the feet in the shoes and go walking around it will go onto the feet so next time they won't take the shoes off because the feet will be a different colour. Hello. Um, I would suggest that if possible, if your organisation is big enough, you go to someone a bit further up the chain to ask them first 
how you might handle it. And if all else fails, um, just be direct and tell him to put his stinking socks and shoes back on because, quite frankly, I wouldn't put up with it. It can be awkward when somebody brings their revolting personal habits into the workplace um, and you need to clearly um, not fall out because you've got to walk back into the office the next day. Maybe try and talk to other colleagues who've been there a bit longer. Is there some arrangement? Does he have some sort of foot fetish that you don't know about? Um, is it some sort of psychological disorder? Or is he just being gross, quite frankly? Because if he's just being gross, then maybe a few of you could get together and say, look, you know, and it's always bad, isn't it? I've been in those situations. Who's going to tell the one person in the office who's got halitosis that they've got halitosis? We've all been there. Eventually, there's a tipping point. Um, get together, talk to other people, come up with a strategy, but don't be embarrassed. You've got to confront this one. It's a tough situation to be in, isn't it? You know, I think being British, we don't say anything, do we? But being in the Navy and being who I am, I'd probably tell them um, that you can wash your feet. There are products like soap out there. You know, I think everybody knows about this. And also, uh, I don't know, a secret Santa, uh, maybe uh, throw that one in anonymously. Uh, you can get these odour eaters and sprays for their feet. So just, yeah, just give them a subtle hint. That's what I'd do. Big thanks if you took time to offer your advice this month. If you're feeling a bit squeamish, yeah, me too, actually. Uh, right, this month, your advice needed, please, on a question of skills and how to transfer them. So in the past, I've been really successful at building localised food businesses, establishing them and selling them on. So what I've got now is a broad range of skills that I'd like to take forward into a new kind of career. But what I'm struggling with is applying those potentially into a bigger, broader role and I'd ask for people who've maybe had similar experiences what advice would they give me? So there we go, a brand new direction wanted but long learned skills, so how to make the most of those skills in a new career. Can you help? Where can she begin? What's your advice please? Do get in touch. You can record a voice memo on your phone and then just email it to podcast at northernpowerwomen.com or just open up WhatsApp on your phone. It's dead easy to do. If you add the Northern Power Women podcast's phone number we are on 07928 387 712 that's 079-28-387-712. And then in the message window, you'll see a little microphone. All you need to do is hold your thumb down on that microphone, say what you want to say, and when you take your thumb off, the message will come direct to us. It's dead easy, so we'd really love to hear from you. And you don't have to give your name if you don't want to. There's no problem whatsoever. So that's all you need to do, please. If you want more details of how to get in touch, they are all online at northernpowerwomen.com. Well, there we go for yet another month of great stories, great advice and brilliant ideas. A big, big thank you for listening. We'd love to hear your feedback, of course. Your reviews really do mean a lot to us, wherever you get your podcast from. If you can take time to leave us a quick rating or review, it's really, really appreciated. That's how more people can find out about what we do. Save the date. Your next episode will arrive for you on Wednesday, the 3rd of April. Until then, this is the Northern Power Women podcast. I'm Sam Walker, and this has been a What Goes On Media production for Northern Power Women. 